0: The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Rios, get us out of this damn place! Hey everybody, this is your host Peter, with the 20th Digest of the second volume, covering Monday, November 14th, through Friday, November 18th, 2022. Well, last week was not a good week for comic fans in terms of recent passings of major creators and personalities. This is not exactly the happiest segment to start off a new digest uh, and a new week, but we learned about the passing of Kevin O'Neill, Carlos Pacheco, and Kevin Conroy. So Kevin O'Neill passed away on November 3rd at the age of 69, Carlos Pacheco passed away on November 9th at the age of 60, just five days short of his birthday on November 14th. And Kevin Conroy, who passed on November 10th at the age of 66, he was just 20 days away from his birthday on November 30th. Now, usually with these kind of announcements, I like to honor and tribute the creators with video clips that I find so you can hear their voices and you can hear their opinions and you can hear their thoughts on comics or on other things. But I don't like to pull necessarily from other podcasts or small YouTube channels. I'd like to try to find Interviews with uh, major media outlets. Things that are a little more, I don't know, in the domain. Um, So I didn't really find too much. Well, you can find a lot of videos um, with these three creators. Obviously, you can see uh, many an interview with Kevin Conroy. Um, Pacheco has a bunch of interviews and also master classes, but a lot of that is in Spanish, you know. So you can find a lot of this stuff on YouTube. You know, you can go and do a little research. Um, the research that I did for this segment was just to see how these creators enriched my own comic reading experience, and or or just my comic geek experience, and you know how I will remember them. Um, you know, from here on out. So, Kevin O'Neill, obviously League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with Alan Moore. You can read Volumes 1 and 2 on the DC app. I started to, or I was first introduced to his artwork with backup stories in the early Green Lantern comics uh, from the early 80s. These were the Tales of the Green Lantern core backups, one of them that I remember is the Eye Lantern two-parter which uh, sort of featured the the green lantern robot known as Stell or maybe it's Steel, I don't know. S T E L. And then there was another one with Zax, the little grasshopper green lantern and he was fighting against the Spider Guild. And then uh, there are a couple Omega Men backups or issues. And one of the backups includes Brief Lives, again, uh, with Alan Moore. Um, I think I said on a CGS episode that this was from a Green Lantern comic, but no, it's from uh, an Omega Man comic. And it's a story about giants who, to us, seem like they're not moving, but the giants themselves, they perceive time differently, and they see us as moving incredibly fast, if they even acknowledge us, right? Then there's Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual Number 2, again, with Alan Moore, a story entitled Tigers, featuring Abin Sur, and this is the story that Johns would really mine for a lot of the stuff that would eventually show up in Sinestro Corps War or Blackest Night. Um, It was a story that Abin Sur... Uh, learned um, a little bit of history about a certain section of the universe, learned about a prophecy about his own life and how there will be a champion that will succeed him and then eventually what will happen um, with to the Green Lantern Corps. And I believe it might be the first mention of Sodam Yat. When you read about this particular annual, one of the stories that is told is that when the story was submitted to the Comics Code Authority, they objected to O'Neill's art. They found his entire style objectionable. So DC pointed out that they had other stories that the authority had, you know, passed on, right? But so they just said, you know what? We're just going to print the comic without the Comics Code Authority. So it was one of those early or early comics that, um, you know, didn't have the Comics Code Authority on it. So, the stamp. Um, uh, then we would go to, like, Martial Law in 1987 with Pat Mills. That was a spoof of American superhero comics, kind of like a mashup between, like, American superhero comics and, and the tropes of Judge Dredd. Um, felt like it was very much in the world of like The One and Brat Pack and the Boys and even Miracle Man to a degree. Um, you could really f- tell that a lot of writers from overseas, even if they were aware of American comics or grew up with American comics, they weren't as beholden to superheroes like American creators were. So they were okay with making fun of them, just pointing out the silliness, or just putting them um, in stories where they could talk about them and deconstruct them. Um, Once it was announced that Kevin O'Neill had passed, of course, there were a bunch of tributes from various creators. Mr. Phil sent me a link to what Alan Moore wrote in honor of Kevin O'Neill's passing, and it's just a short little poem, and he wrote... Thus is the course of Fable's River Run to flood with jewels the delta of its end. Here is the summit peak of Let's Pretend. Now is the story of all stories done, and we hail our imaginary friends before the curtain of the stars descends. I think it's probably fairly obvious where Kevin Conroy lives in a lot of people's minds, especially with my generation and several generations above and beyond, or above and below, um, the contributions to Batman the Animated Series, it probably was Justice League and Justice League Unlimited where I really got um, the majority of what Kevin Conroy would bring to the character if that makes sense. Because I watched episodes of Batman the Animated Series, but it was going on mostly while I was in college, you know, in the early 90s. So I wasn't like a faithful watcher of television at that point. Um, and I certainly would watch some episodes, but I wasn't like nearly invested, like probably many other people were. Um, but When it came to Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, those, I really, I really absorbed them. So I think that's where the Kevin Conroy Batman kind of lives in my mind more than the animated series, Batman animated series. Um, And, you know, you have to think the Batman animated series as groundbreaking and monumental as it is, it's not until you start to hear Kevin Conroy doing Batman in other things that you realize that there's this larger universe suddenly starting to build. Superman animated series, all the Justice League stuff, guest appearances in, I don't know, Teen Titans or Batman Beyond, and then Static possibly, I don't know, you know, uh, eventually, video games. Right when he starts to move from the animated series to all these other things, uh, the animated movies. Right, he he has voiced Batman in a lot of those movies. When he when he starts to spread, Batman always was kind of like the focus point for the DC animated universe, which means if if Batman is the focus point, most of the times it was because of Kevin Conroy. And certainly his appearance on the CW, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, You know, there's so much that is said about that animated series. There's so much that is said about Kevin Conroy. There's a bunch of interviews. Um, In fact, as I was looking through, there's a YouTube video with a lot of those Justice League voice actors uh, that I was I marked because I want to watch it for a later time so yeah you know it's it's a loss um it's a very iconic voice for the cartoon and for the character and many times when they get other actors to play Batman you can tell they're really just doing like a variation of Kevin Conroy now the question is you know sort of like with the Muppets do you get do you just get people who sound? like, the most iconic version of the character, or do they decide to eventually, um, you know, find a new path for the Batman voice, but, you know, I don't know if they're gonna do that or not. And then ending with Carlos Pacheco, probably of the three, the one that, um, I have the most work from, um, Carlos had artwork in some some of the Flash issue, issues around the time that Impulse was created, but really it was the 1994 Bishop miniseries with John Ostrander inked by Cam Smith, which is where I probably first absorbed his artwork, and as I was flipping through it just recently, there's... A very real 90s vibe but with someone who actually has like a good sense of figure work and a good sense of composition and in many ways it feels like slightly like early Brian Hitch work um but it's it's playing in the X-Men universe and it is it feels like it, it like a lot of the other artists at that time in terms of the energy. Um, but it really works. And I can remember that mini series having really good quality paper and a cardstock cover, I think. Same with the X-Universe two-issue miniseries during Age of Apocalypse from 1995. So again, Carlos Pacheco artwork, you know. Um, and in this instance, he's able to reimagine all of the other characters within the Marvel Universe that are outside of, like, the X-Universe as they battle against Mikhail, the forgotten Apocalypse Horseman. And then Starjammers, the four-issue series with Warren Ellis, also in 1995, Carlos Pacheco doing space opera. Um, All three of these with Cam Smith on inks, by the way. And, again, paper quality, cardstock cover, um... This artist that is uh, not quite found, has not quite found w- the groove of what will make him Carlos Pacheco, but it is that damn good artwork and on characters or concepts that, um, I was like, yeah, this is great. I want more of this. Uh, of, and then he would move on to X-Men. Again, these are things that I read. There was other stuff as well, but um, that was in 1997 during the Operation Zero Tolerance event. Of course, Avengers Forever, 1998, 1999, Jesus Marino on inks. Just a mind-blowing experience experience of comics and continuity and Busek's story is amazing and the artwork matches. And I, I feel like Even though I had been familiar with Pacheco's work, um, this was the thing that probably cemented him as an amazing artist for many of us, and obvious comparisons to, like, George Perez, and um, just stunning. I really want to read that again. Um, Kurt Busiek, in one of his tributes, talked about how when it came time to develop this story, it really came about because it was a contract obligation, almost, for Pacheco to do an Avengers project, and he wanted Busiek to write it. So the story was originally an idea for Perez, who was doing the Avengers book at the time. So Busiek asked Perez, hey, can I take this story and give it to Pacheco and so that we can do this series, you know? And they had to come up with a new angle, and they had to, you know, figure out how things were going to work. Busick is very clear on mentioning that this wasn't like he had an idea and he just gave it to an artist. They worked together. And as they were going, even as they were going through the issues, it developed and it changed. And he didn't want to just use this to fix the Avengers. It was really a story that Pacheco and Busick wanted to tell to play to their strengths as collaborators. Um, Busiek mentioned that it was Pacheco's idea to use Songbird in this story, and once they figured out the hook of using various Avengers from different timelines, but using them when they were maybe not at their highest point, it was Pacheco's idea to use the disillusioned Captain America from the Englehart era, and you can tell that this collaboration meant something because eventually they would write Aerosmith at Image, which uh, I didn't read, but then also the Superman story um, that he wrote with, or that he did with Busiek called Camelot Falls, and that featured Arion the Lord of Atlantis, and some um, other characters. It was a really good story. When we get to two, the year 2000, you start to get comics actually written by Carlos Pacheco. The four issue Inhuman story that I liked with the artwork of Ladron for the first three issues. Uh, I probably would want to read it again to see how it holds up now, but I did enjoy it at the time. Then, of course, his uh, run on Fantastic Four, where he, where he was co writer with Rafael Ma- Marin and he would do the artwork, Jesus Marino on Inks again. And I just, that run is so good. I imagine it probably still holds up. I certainly hope so. It started at issue 35 and it would go up to issue 50. You know, there were some issues that he wasn't involved with. Um, uh, You know, El Diablo, bringing back the Baxter building. I remember it just being a lot of fun. And also I really enjoyed how they would pull in other elements of the larger Marvel Universe. That was such a solid run, and then from like issues 51 through 59, they really didn't have a dedicated team until Mark Wade and Mike Waringo would pick up with issue number 60. You have, in 2002, JLA, JSA, Virtue, and Vice hardcover that, if you've never read that, and you're either a JLA fan or a JSA fan or you're a fan of the team-ups and you've never read it, you really need to go read it because it is a stellar story um, and it is just beautiful, beautiful artwork. It's another... I think it's probably his best DC work, um, You know, especially because it's long form. And then in 2004 with Jeff Loeb, the absolute power arc in Superman, Batman, that title was so amazing and he got to do five or six issues of that. He helped to kick off the Jeff Johns Green Lantern series in 2005. I wish he would have stayed longer, but, you know, he certainly developed... um, uh, helped to develop, you know, what the series could be like. And then eventually you get Yvonne Hayes, you know, and they're kind of in the same world, a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, And yeah, and then, you know, from there, I think once he started to do... The Ultimate Comics line for Marvel, when they were doing like their second or third wave of titles, uh, I sort of fell off a little bit. I do have Squadron Sinister from 2015, which was part of Secret Wars, um, because I have a soft spot for the Squadron Supreme, but when when I found out it was drawn by Pacheco, I was like, okay, I gotta get that. But then that's really it, um, other than maybe some one-offs here and there. One of the things I found was that one of, um, you know, Pacheco was on Twitter and after he had announced that his health was declining and he most likely would have to retire from from comics, he posted lyrics to a song um, called And When I Die. And it was recorded by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The uh, artist who wrote the song was Laura Nero and the lyric that he wrote is and when i die and when i'm dead dead and gone there'll be one child and a world to carry on to carry on i'm not scared of dying and i don't really care if it's peace you f- if it's peace you find in dying well then let the time be near so i mean there was a man who you know like george perez was uh, looking at his mortality, you know, looking at the end of his life and looking at um, a finish line, I guess you could say, and just wondering when it would come and how much more he would be able to do. Uh, just, it's been a real sad year for for Creator's passing, and certainly you want to say, please do all you can to <laughs> have a healthy life because it's a career that's very stationary, you know? You're just, just you and a desk for 8 to 12 hours a day, and it's like, please, you know, take breaks, walk, go get checkups if you can, get some exercise. Um, Just like athletes have to condition their bodies, so do comic creators, because, again, it's, all you do is just sit. Sit and create. So, that's gotta be uh, taxing on the body, but anyway, that's a whole other, whole other thing. So... Just my small tribute for three creators, and I'm sure some of you have deeper connections with some of these guys, and uh, it's just really sad when it happens. And and to see three of them sort of back-to-back-to-back, that was um, kind of shocking for the comics world. So, rest in peace. Talk back Tuesday. Some voicemail listener feedback from Kurt Matilla. Well, hey, Peter. It's uh,
1: your uh, fan and listener, Kurt, out here in Los Angeles, California. I'm uh, just finishing a walk around the Silver Lake Reservoir here in uh, the uh, Los Feliz Silver Lake neighborhood of California. I just finished the latest Daily roast re- Digest, uh, you know, in the path that I usually consume your podcast, which is you know, around this uh, path, this this reservoir, and uh, yeah, I realized I, I owed I owed a, a few uh, feedback and comments because uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying this new volume. Um, specifically, I think the Marvel Saga Monday, uh, Marvel Saga didn't make it to my local spinnerax, but I kind of fell. I was seduced by all the house ads, so it was my first subscription uh, that I got in the mail. And I remember being very disappointed because I was like, what the hell is this? The format was weird. I didn't quite understand it. It was not what I thought it was gonna be, but um, hearing you kind of go through the issues and kind of give it context is making me go, oh, maybe maybe, let me go back to my old Marvel saga books. And uh, man, it's been a treat following along. Uh, your, Your Trivia Tuesday, Man, it feels, it feels crazy to be in the hot seat that Shane and Brian and Pants and Murd and Jamie had been in on the CGS um, trivia, because I think I've listened to those episodes a couple times, so I kind of remembered the answers, but to be sort of firsthand going, oh my God, I, I have no idea what the answer to that is, that was, that was pretty good. Um, but uh, I really also enjoy the sort of retrospective look at the anniversary of your collecting and I particularly enjoy how you sort of define what comic collecting is or when you sort of started being the, this isn't when you know books were kind of handed to you as either a gift or you know a present or somehow just found your way into you, but you actually consciously went to the store on the spinner rack and started collecting comics. And um, that was really interesting for me because I, I too sort of started collecting around 1982. And something I did uh, in addition to just kind of thinking about you know, the books that I chose off the, the, the rack in 82, I started looking at what else was published both from either DC or Marvel and, you know, what else was on that spin rack and, and why did I not choose those books? Because I remember specifically which books I wound up getting in in my early collection, but I was, I was very curious, like, what about either the cover or the title, or what about the imagery didn't make me choose say you know dc comics presents or us1 or team america so i started kind of going through the other books that were on the spinner rack at that time and i started kind of buying some of these old issues from like 1982 around the publisher around the same time of the books that i started getting And I, I found myself really sort of enjoying what what uh what else was out there and sort of the what parallel world Uh, my life would have been if I started buying those comics, um, instead. Um, the, uh, last but not least, your, your Patreon, uh, sort of wrap it up segment. Dear God, do it. My goodness. Like, I can't click the button fast enough. Um, and man, you kind of crack the code. The, the, my own iPhone voice recorder actually cut me off like the old CGS voicemail time limit. The, uh, the technology may have evolved but the uh hey let's wrap it up on the message uh device hasn't uh, anyway um yeah the the um podcast podcast com- submission idea is is uh is a home run one i personally have a <laughs> i would have a long list of uh of uh podcast commissions hearing what the rios take is on a variety of uh comics related po- uh ideas all-star squadron anyway uh hope you're well and um keep up the great work volume two is spectacular okay man bye
0: thank you kurt thank you for that feedback and for a number of things that i can respond to first of all just hilarious that um Kurt referenced <laughs> the old CGS voice line that used to cut people off all the time and they used to get so frustrated with that. I love that. Um, first of all, first of all, the Marvel saga, yeah, you know, still continuing along with that. And you know what? I never really talked about it, but yeah, I could see how that would probably not be for everyone because it's a lot of text, and it is in many ways sort of just like a reprint series but it's not reprinting all the stories, so some people might feel cheated about that, and maybe it's a little dry, you know? Um, I think the once DC did History of the DC Universe with Wolfman and Perez, and then if you think about all the way to this day of History of the Marvel Universe by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez, I mean, those tellings of of the larger publisher's history has a lot more to it. It's more visually appealing. It's more prose work instead of just sort of like dry narrative. And um, I don't know. Has there been anything that's been sort of in between? Something that is historical but yet still a comic book style? I'm sure there has been. I'm just not thinking of what it is. So, um, yeah, I can certainly see how it, it's not... Uh, not for everyone but um, for my particular purposes it I love it I love reference material I mean I love comic book reference material magazines even these dry ones even the indexes from like you know New teen Titans and um, crisis and I think I have the Hawkman one and millennium you know it's just all a bunch of words but I love them um love that Kurt brought up subscriptions um you know because I'm sure we all, had subscriptions, or many of us probably had subscriptions in the 80s for something or other. Mine was for uh, New Teen Titans and uh, Legion of Superheroes. I think that's probably it, right? I never got one from Marvel, but I remember they used to come in just a regular plastic bag, and they would say, hey, you know, we're going to put a, a board in it for to make it sturdy, but it really was just one of those flimsy cardboard Uh, backing boards. I mean, like really flimsy, you know, and of course the postman would curl it up and shove it through the mail slot. Um, I think one time I even got a comic that was wrapped in cardboard, but was completely open on either end. So it could have slipped out. Like I, I remember something like that, unless somebody opened it and tore off, or maybe the plastic bag got caught and they just decided to deliver it to deliver it with just the cardboard i don't know but uh ah, subscriptions um and then the uh, the idea of you know why do we start picking up comics wherever it is that we pick it, pick them up right like why was my first issue of flash the one that has the cover of you know flash's hands in handcuffs And why did I pick up that issue versus the one right before it? You know, we're talking Barry Allen right before the crisis. And so I like that notion that Kurt is talking about because it is something I think about, you know. And maybe it has to do with distribution since there were more distributors back then. Maybe my comic store um, didn't get a certain title or... Maybe it missed an issue here and there. And I didn't even... It wasn't really a comic store. It was a local mom-and-pop store down, you know, on the corner. Um, uh, But why the first Batman uh, comic I ever got? Why, Why did I pick up that issue? Why did I pick up New Teen Titans issue 28? Why did I pick up Legion of Superheroes 304? You know, why the first Superman? Why the first Wonder Woman? Was it because of the cover... You know, did I not see it before, Before you know, see earlier issues? Or maybe it was the first time I decided that I was going to buy comics. Those were the comics that were on the shelf, you know, or on the spinner rack. So I do love that idea, and I should probably try to explore it more. Thank you, as always, for the feedback for the Patreon. Um, I I have a lot of ideas of how I want to... How I want to go about um, involving the listeners, I think, as I think I talked about, and you know, Kurt mentions All Star Squadron, and I think one of the things I probably will do. So one of the tiers I talked about will be a tier where you will get to see all of the notes that I have, and I'll I'll dump notes, you know, daily or whatever, about you know. Maybe one day it'll be about a comic. Maybe one day it'll be about a TV show. I'm talking about notes that I've had for many, many years and that I continue to do and continue to take as I watch something, as I read something. I mean, I have a wealth of things. And um, I originally thought I would just drop it all like in a Google Doc or a Google folder and then you could get access to that. But maybe that is what Patreon is for. You know, put a post up and it's it matches whatever that tier is and that way you can search it easier maybe if it's all on Patreon, you know, make sure the titles are well defined. But then it also allows for feedback, right? I could have one thread that is specifically like your suggestions And in that thread, it's like, if you belong to that tier, what do you want to hear about? What do you, what kind of notes do you want? And I can dig through all my notes and I go, yeah, I have that and I have that and I have that. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And yes, I do have notes on All-Star Squadron because I did read that series or I started to read, um, years back And I wanted to read it so that once it started to go in publishing order with Infinity, Inc., I wanted to read the two titles back to back. Um, I think I stopped somewhere. I don't quite remember where I stopped, but I think I only got about two years into the series. Um, My biggest takeaway for that series is that Roy Thomas wanted to do month to month, you know, all during... The publishing history of Justice Society and create this new continuity, but also the backdrop of World War II, and he wanted to go through all of World War II. But by the time the series ends, I think he only gets through like, is it even a year? I don't even remember. But all I remember is in those first two years, he barely was, get, <laughs> barely getting into 1941. Like we weren't, we were not getting too far. And that series ran, what, like 60, 70 issues, I think, right? Um, he must have thought he was going to write that for 100 years because it's like the pace that he took, he was not going to get through the war within the first 100 issues, you know? It was going to take much longer than that. So um, there is a podcast that um, I can play a promo for in this episode called um, "A World on Fire It's an All-Star Squadron podcast. In their first season, they tackled all of All-Star Squadron. And now they're in their second season, and they're doing a lot of comics from the 70s, including Freedom Fighters and Steel. Um, Did they do Infinity, Inc.? I don't remember, because I'm not caught up with them. But um, it looks like they probably just did All-Star Squadron. The, The thing I like about their podcast is not only do they go issue by issue, and then eventually they do, like, two or three issues at a time. They also try to dig into the actual history uh, and the backdrop of World World War II. So, uh, you know, they they kind of put a little context to what it is Roy Thomas is building and creating, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, that's a world on fire. I will play their promo some t- somewhere in this episode. Um, it's a promo that they created before the podcast even began. So I think it it says something like, you know, this podcast will start in, you know, January of whatever. Um, so you can just disregard that bit. So Kurt, thank you. Thank you so much for that feedback. I really appreciate it. And anyone else, you can do the same. You can send me a voicemail and I'll play it here on the Talk Back Tuesday. I am compiling... Emails and comments so that I can do a a feedback Friday somewhere down the road for things that I receive in November. I know I got an email from Matt Williams that I want to get to eventually. So yes, please, by all means, um, let's continue the conversation. Wednesday Comics Wednesday Teen Titans. This is the seventh strip within the Wednesday Comics Anthology that I'm taking a look at every three digests. This is edited by Mark Chiarello. This came out in 2009, 12 issues weekly, and I am taking a look at each strip. So this is Teen Titans by Eddie Berganza, Sean Galloway, and Nick J. Napolitano on letters. So, Teen Titans, right? This should be right there in my wheelhouse because of my love for Teen Titans. And, you know, the logo is emulating the Teen Titans cartoon. The artwork by Galloway has an animated feel to it. It's Teen Titans, you know... I should love this, right? Well, I don't. <laughs> I do not. So Eddie Berganza, Sean Galloway, uh, you know, Berganza was more an editor throughout his career, uh throughout his infamous career, right? Um and used to, you know, did some writing here and there. For Galloway, this is early in His career, I mean, he's an animation and a game and a toy designer, uh, worked on Teen Titans Go, some Cartoon Network comics, but this is Wednesday Comics is very early in his career. Braganza is an editor that, at least in terms of Titans, Edited the Dan Jurgens run in the mid-90s. Edited Peter David's Young Justice series. Edited Titans by Devin Grayson and Mark Buckingham for the first 25 issues. Did a whole bunch of side Titans projects, miniseries, etc. Uh, edited during Johns' run, you know. And the writing credits that he has is for the Superboy series of the 90s, you know, scattered issues here and there. So, you would think with that kind of resume that um, certainly he would be familiar with the characters, which, you know, I mean, he is, but, you know, does does editing mean that he's also going to be a good writer? Nah, well, according to this, no. So, at the time of Wednesday Comics... Uh, The Teen Titans series, the one that started with Jeff Johns and Mike McCone, was well into the 70s by now. And we had just wrapped up a a run by Sean McKeever, who took over from Jeff Johns, and we weren't quite at when Felicia T. Henderson takes over. Um, So we're somewhere in the 70s. The lineup is, you know, it's not the lineup that most people remember, um, but it is reflected here in the in the series so when you mash that up with the artwork by sean galloway i don't know i i I just don't think that was uh i don't think the story for what kind of artwork you get with galloway and then using the characters that he used i think it's all it just doesn't mix well So the story is about um, Tim Drake and Blue Beetle, Jaime Reyes, Kid Devil, Wonder Girl, Miss Martian, Ravager, and then we do get the older Titans like Beast Boy, Nightwing, Starfire, and Cyborg, and it is their battle against a new version of Trident who has a bone to pick with the Titans for some reason, and he believes that... um, The Titans are going to grow and going to, you know, start to want to control the world and do evil. So he's going to be Trident and he's going to do something about it. But then we learn later that it really is a revenge scheme because this Trident is the son of Dr. Light. But then we find out, nope, that's not it at all. It turns out that Trident is Deathstroke and Deathstroke hired Gizmo to make him forget that he was Slade Wilson so that he could finally defeat the Titans once and for all without any emotional baggage, right? No emotional baggage when it comes to his son Jericho or his daughter Ravager. Uh, Just, he wanted to cut those ties so he did some kind of mind thing with Gizmo and he became this character of Trident. Now, it's not, you know, it's not like a terrible idea but it is not executed well, it certainly doesn't fit the style of artwork that that Galloway is giving. And it reveals itself in many clumsy ways as we go along. And ultimately, there are just some things in the story progression that I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. And I don't know, you know, felt like we jumped a little bit here. And it's this weird mashup of, of a modern story that is taking place... In many ways, like right within mainstream DC Universe continuity for an anthology series, that is, you know, you you don't expect that, it it just doesn't it doesn't end well. It doesn't mix well, and it's it becomes a um, a very confusing strip. Uh, I've read one article from Braganza who said the inspiration for the strip was Stan Lee and the Spider-Man strip. It gave you just enough of a story with a cliffhanger to get you back for the next chapter. It's what I have been trying to do. And, you know, even though the art even though I like the artwork and I like the style, it has problems there too, because it doesn't necessarily well, it's not really a problem, but the potential to use this format is just not there. It's not there in the story. It's not there in the artwork. It's too connected to the mainstream DC universe. The reveals are clumsy. The characterizations aren't terrible, you know? Whenever you do an anthology like this, you kind of want to do the most stereotypical characterization, as long as it's true to the character that you can, because you don't have time to delve deep in the character. So some of that is some of that stuff rings true. It's just awkward and clashes and um it just doesn't work the the coloring uh i know this got a lot of criticism because the color coloring got washed out because of the newsprint format and the printing and when you look at like the collection or you look at it online obviously the colors pop more i don't really care about that because again it's meant to be sunday funnies It's meant to be this broadsheet format. The purpose was the larger format, was to read it like a kid, you know. But of course, the collectors in us want to be like, oh, we want it to last forever. I don't, I didn't care about that, you know. I could go elsewhere. I have the hardcover, in fact, and I could look at it and go, sure, I can see where, what the coloring was supposed to be. It's fine. It's washed out, but whatever. Um, I'm not going to fault the strip for the format, right? Um, but it is very clearly, uh, you know, inspired by Teen Titans Go when you look at the designs of like Jericho and Starfire and Gizmo and Panther. Uh, I just, by the end of it, I'm like, I don't know what the point is for the strip. It feels like this should have been a backup tale in the actual comic. And I don't think they really used this format to its fullest potential. In fact, You can find Galloway's strips online without the words, and you almost can tell the story without the dialogue. And I I feel like that could have been an interesting exercise to use very little dialogue, let the artwork speak for itself, and maybe we fill in the blanks, right? And then when we get to those certain reveals, we can be like, oh, wow, you know, here's a little, here's a, a nice little twist, you know, so... Anyway, let's go through strip by strip. I don't have many notes here because, again, uh, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, the first strip is totally fine. The setup is there. You see the Titans. You underst- It's from Trident's point of view, and he's trying to give you, you know, the whole narrative of the Titans as a team and a family and his motivations. Uh, I call myself Trident. I'm the one that's going to make this name mean something because today I make sure the Titans legacy is no more great solid good good intro totally fine. The second strip is from Robin's point of view. And he's, like, bemoaning why it's so hard to take down a lame villain like Trident. And then, of course, here come the older Titans. So Tim Drake is feeling like a failure as a leader. And he says, I hate Wednesdays. I like that line. Still working for me. I'm like, I'm there. I get it. Characterization, good. No problem. Uh, Three is also from Robin's point of view. They introduce something called the Smash Unit. Special Mobile Armored Super Hospital. It's kind of like DC's answer in a way, not quite, but to damage control, like these, this group that comes in and helps metahumans. I kind of like that. That was a nice concept. Strip number four, Trident attacks the smash ship. And now we get a secondary motivation here, um, saying that they caused more grief than anyone you have ever fought. You gained everyone's trust, and then you turned on society, There is no future as long as you live. And I'm like, okay, a little different motivation, but maybe we're getting closer to whatever. Strip 5 is from one of the nurses on, uh, or one of the people on the Smash unit. She doesn't really trust metahumans because her father was caught in a building collapse and there was no hero there to rescue her. But then we never see them again. So it's like, okay... It kind of feeds into Trident's narrative, but we never see it again. And Trident Trident's narrative, as we're going to find out, is false. So what was the point? Um, strip six is from Blue Beetle's point of view. And now we get a third motivation from Trident because we find out he is Arthur Light, Dr. Light's son, and he blames the Titans for his death. To which I'm like, okay, now we're starting to get too much into... The mainstream DC universe. Strip seven, we get this complete time jump where Trident has Blue Beetle captured and he made some kind of announcement, but that was off panel. And we get like this info dump about Dr. Light, how he was turned into a candle by the specter and how Karate Kid was masquerading, masquerading as Trident during the lightning saga. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, 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 and Robin says that Triton is from the future, and I'm like, where did you get that? So, this is where things really start to go off the rails. Uh, Strip 8, they go to the old Titans cave, which was kind of cool, and of course, there are a lot of old villains that attack the Titans, like Trigon versus Kid Devil, Beast Boy versus Terra, of course, Starfire versus Blackfire, Nightwing versus Doctor Light, etc., etc. Like it's like, okay, you know, I I don't mind this one so much. We find out in strip 9 that Blue Beetle is actually Trident in, in disguise. I don't know how that happens. All the rest of the villains are holograms. Uh in 10 we get a backstory this is where we find out that Trident is from the future. The Titans were starting to, like, overtake the world. But then Gizmo shows up at the end and says, you don't remember who you really are? And then 11 is where we find out, oh, it's Deathstroke. And this was his idea with Gizmo to defeat the Titans as Trident because he can't ever defeat them as Deathstroke because he just has too much connections with them. And I was like, mm, you lost me. And then 12 is Robin's point of view mirroring what Trident was talking about in the first strip about the Titans and their legacy and they beat Deathstroke and and then it just ends. It ends with Robin and Ravager punching Deathstroke and that's it. That's it. Yeah. So it's a strip that has fine artwork. It's a story that is not a terrible idea, it's just terribly executed. It's clumsy. And all of it just feels like I don't know why it's in Wednesday Comics. So, if I had to do my rankings, we got Commandy at number one with Metamorpho a very close second. We got Batman and Dead Man next. Then we have Green Lantern and Superman next. And at the bottom, finally... We have one that I feel, you know, is in its right place. We have Teen Titans at the bottom. So there you go. Up next, the next strip uh, in another three digests will be Strange Adventures by Paul Pope with Jose Villarubia. And to wrap out this Wednesday segment, let me give my recommendations for the week of November 16th. From Image, if you like hardcover collections, Check out the Philadelphia Deluxe Edition Hardcover Book One, collecting issues 1 through 12, plus five chapters of the werewolf tie in story. And this is for $39.99. So is the next collection as well. Philadelphia is about fathers and son detectives, father and son detectives, Philadelphia vampires, and a long thought dead U.S. president. And then the second hardcover is Copra Master Collection Hardcover Book One by Michelle Fife, celebrating Cobra's 10th anniversary, the world's greatest superhero revenge series. And I, you know, Fife has a love of comics that I used to love in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, and you can see it in his work, so go check that out. From Marvel, Blade Vampire Nation One-Shot, $4.99, by Mark Russell. What? And the art is by Dave Wachter, which is awesome. And it's Blade as the sheriff of Dracula's New Vampire, no- uh, new vampire Nation, located in Chernobyl. Yeah, I want to read this. Also check out the Captain America and Winter Soldier special. For $4.99, bringing us closer to next year's Captain America Cold War event. And this is the issue where Winter Soldier gets a little bit of a a revamp, a new costume, a new mission. And then last week I mentioned DC's new Golden Age one shot. This week we get the first issue of Stargirl The Lost Children, the first issue of six uh, for that limited series by Jeff Johns and Todd Nock, $3.99 where Stargirl and Red Arrow Arrow discover that a whole bunch of Golden Age teen sidekicks have gone missing. And uh, whoever is behind it is a a character known as Childminder. And then from Tomorrow's Publishing, back issue 140, $10.95, the All Dinosaur issue, featuring interviews with Xenozoic's Mark Schultz, And dino artist extraordinaire William Stout, plus Godzilla, Dinosaurs for Hire, Dino Riders, Jurassic Park, and so many others. There you go, recommendations for the week of November 16.
1: A World on Fire,
0: an All Star Squadron podcast. Join your hosts, Billy D. And Herman as we take a deep dive into the seminal DC comic series created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. We'll be covering the series issue by issue, spotlighting our favorite characters, and talking about the historical tie-ins as well.
1: So join us every month in A World on Fire and All-Star Squadron
0: podcast. There it is. That's the World on Fire and All-Star Squadron podcast promo that I talked about in the Tuesday segment. And in this Thursday segment, I am going to run down just a few other podcast recommendations, starting with a new podcast, Comics Discourse 114, hosted by Brian, Brian, and Hassan T. Uh, Of the three, I know Hassan from uh, DC All-Stars, And uh, from Gotham by Geeks podcast, they have two episodes as of this recording. Uh, The first one dropped on November 7th about current Nightwing issues and the Dan Slott She-Hulk series volume 1. And then another episode on November 15th on DC's Dark Knights of Steel and Grimm 1-5 through from Boom Studios. In the category of, hey, look who dropped an episode, finally, uh, we have the Sanyo cast, two new episodes since October, hosted by Ryan Sanyo, episodes 334 and 335, and Culture Trappin' with Daryl, Julian, Gil, and Sean. They dropped an episode earlier in November, after almost 10 months. Uh, episode 45, so they are on their way to episode 50. Both podcasts I really, really enjoy. On YouTube, go check out Sleepy Reader 666 And earlier in November, posted a video entitled Comic Books in Exile. Basically showing off about 100 short boxes in storage and talking about, you know, here's this particular pile and in these boxes you know, are all DC or Bronze Age or modern um, independence or kids books or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought it was fun to see, you know, someone's collection and how they store them and how they stack them and think about their inventory. I always enjoy that. Um, I was trying to do some math. I don't know how many comics a short box actually holds. Maybe a hundred? I mean, a long box, you could squeeze in, what, around like 300, I think? Anywhere from like 250 to 300. So is a short box like 1, 150, and then you times that times 100? Wow. Um, And then finally, there is a podcast anniversary alert for the Lantern cast, Celebrating their 14th anniversary mid November, and they are on their way to episode 500. As of this recording, they just dropped episode 499, hosted by Chad, Mark, and Dan. And even though they are on their way to 500, they have more episodes. So I think in all, they might even be closer to 600. But they are celebrating their anniversary. So there you go. Just a a few recommendations for other comic podcasts, should you wish to check them out. Let's end out this week's digest here on Friday, November 18th with some comic news. Some comic news that dropped today concerning DC Comics and the Dawn of DC starting in January of 2023. So I'm sure by the time you hear this, since I am a little behind, um, you probably have already heard some more news about Dawn of DC and what that is, and you probably heard about maybe some more creative teams and maybe sort some more titles, but this is what I got, um, you know, here on, on, as I'm recording, um, this segment, this is what we got so far, just the initial, uh, press release from DC Comics. This is a year-long publishing initiative, forging the future one hero at a time, featuring over 20 new titles throughout 2023, starring Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, The Doom Patrol, Superboy, Shazam, and more. And this is something that both companies, Marvel and DC, they like to do. Um, Therefore, while they were doing it, uh, you know, every number of years, and certainly DC has done it a bunch of years, I mean, you can think of DC Rebirth leading into Infinite Frontier, and now into um, dawn of dc with marvel we've had other ones like the marvel's heroic age and marvel now certainly so this is you know certainly nothing new a publishing initiative it's more of branding uh, a reinvigoration without having to reboot you know it did make me wonder what was the first one right like what was the first publishing branding that wasn't necessarily involved with an event, you know. So, you know, you can't count like, you can't even count something like Brightest Day, because even though that was a branding, there was a Brightest Day weekly series, right? So that's not what I mean. And I certainly don't mean like when they were doing Crisis and you had the Crisis banner up top, or, you know, legends, or, you know, I don't mean event, I mean branding. Something that was like like this, like an initiative um, that kicked off the publishing line and creators could either use it as a new starting point or maybe they could use it as a way to shuffle their creators around like Marvel now. Sometimes it spins out of like a, a one-shot, you know, and that's certainly Okay. Um, So I was trying to think of that, and I didn't really come up with an answer, but I have a few examples, I guess you could say. Um, One of the earliest ones I could think of that I don't think really counts, but when you think about when DC in the 60s, to distinguish themselves from other companies, they created those go-go checks across the top as a way to... I don't know, try to find them immediately on the shelves because most times if they're stacked vertically, you would see the top of a comic, right? That's, that's a, it's not the same, but it's something that I'm, it's kind of what I'm talking about. It's something that they're doing to unite all their titles, you know? Um, Certainly Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return from Marvel Comics in the mid-90s, Those were definite brandings. Um, Even though there was a Heroes Return miniseries, the idea was that all those titles like Avengers and Spider-Man and Thor and Captain America, you know, that they were going to start again and we were going to be in a new era. Um, I don't necessarily count like Marvel Knights or New Universe because that's more of like an imprint branding more than anything. Um, I thought about maybe even, like, Mutant Genesis from 1991. Because I remember that promo poster they had, and it was Mutant Genesis. And then at the bottom, you saw titles, X-Force, X-Factor, X-Men, Excalibur. You know, you saw the title logos. And you saw Cable and Nightcrawler, and I think Cyclops was on it, and a few other people. And that was certainly, you know, a new start for the X-Men line, But they didn't quite have the branding, right? Mutant Genesis wasn't emblazoned across the top. It was just something that was in that promo poster, which I still have in one of my comic book scrapbooks. So what was the first branding? I got to do a little more research on that because I want to know. And if you know, let me know. Um, Again, not tied into necessarily an event. It has to be more of like a thematic thing. So anyway, okay, so back to... Dawn of DC. Uh, and I'll just read a few things that I pulled from the press release here. Following the events of Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths and DC Universe Lazarus Planet, the world superheroes have emerged from the biggest, most devastating battles of their lives and and are reinvigorated, there's that word, in their fights against evil. This line-wide, multi-event narrative initiative kicks off with January's Action Comics Now, I don't like that they use the word event, because, you know, you're sort of squashing my rules here, but um, they decided to use that word. Uh, DC will be celebrating the classic characters while also embracing the next generation of new heroes, as we're going to need everyone to help fight against the darkness. Dawn of DC will shine the spotlight on a number of fan-favorite superheroes and supervillains that haven't been front and center for some time. This is an easy entry point for both lifelong readers and those picking up a comic for the first time to dive into the new stories. Sounds like, you know, any other time they decide to do something like that, really. Um, So this is kicking off in January with Action Comics 1051, and it's a whole new era for Superman Comics. They are going to emulate what they used to do in the 90s with uh, basically like, you know, the whole triangle numbering thing, the titles are going to be a little more connected. Um, the Action Comics is by writers Philip Kennedy Johnson, Dan Jurgens, Lee Williams. Um, Superman number 1 will be out in February with Joshua, Joshua Williamson and artist Jamal Campbell. And that'll find Clark Kent settling back into his life on Earth while iconic and new enemies erupt from the shadows to take him on. And then John Kent will get his own title, um, and he will go up against the man responsible for his kidnap and torture, Ultraman, in Adventures of Superman, John Kent, number one, by Tom Taylor and Clayton Henry. That'll be available in March. So, you know, Dan Jurgens. Does he still have anything else to say with Superman? I mean, he's written that character for, you know, 30 years. Um, or 30 years plus. Uh, you know, okay, I guess. Jamal Campbell, though, that's great. That's a great draw for me. I love his stuff on Naomi, and um, I pick up a few of his covers. Yeah, so that's really great. Also in March, spinning out of Lazarus Planet, The Doom Patrol Returns. And we have, uh, let's see, in Unstoppable Doom Patrol by Dennis Culver and Chris Burnham. Burnham can really do weird comics, so that's pretty good casting on that part on that comic. In April, we have Superboy, The Man of Tomorrow by Kenny Porter and Janoye Lindsay. That is one of the Round Robin winners. And this is about Connor Kent, the clone Superboy and he's going to go out in space and discover um, his place within the universe. And then also in April, we have Green Arrow by Joshua Williamson and Sean Zexie, an action-packed adventure across the DC universe that sets the stage for major stories in 2023. Two Green Lantern titles, Hal Jordan by Mariko Tamaki with uh, Hal Jordan returning to Earth and Jon Stewart by, again, Philip Kennedy Johnson, and that'll be about the... It'll be back to basics as the military-trained, gritty, but heroic Green Lantern takes the the center stage, Jon Stewart. No artists yet announced on those series. In May, we have a cyborg comic with no team announced just yet and Batman Brave and the Bold featuring top writers and artists like Tom King, Mitch Garretts, Gilliam, Gilliam March, Gabriel Hardman, Dan Mora, Rob Williams, and more. In June, Mark Wade and Dan Mora are going to take on Shazam with Billy Batson at the helm and this will be more of a comedic comic and we'll see Shazam hanging out at the Rock of Eternity traveling through time and space, as well as punching dinosaurs in the face, seeing how long he can hold his breath on the moon, and getting into wild and fun adventures with his tiger, Talky Tawny. Uh, And then there's a Penguin series in June, where the government has brought him back to Gotham, and he has to reorganize his crime syndicate for a reason, and this is spinning out of the pages of Batman, Uh, This is a working title, The Penguin, but it'll be by Tom King and Stefano Guadiano, And then later on in 2023, Steelworks, just in time for his 30th anniversary, John Henry Irons must bring Metropolis into the future while trusting his niece Natasha to carry the mantle of steel. No creative team on that just yet. So again, those are just the early announcements and there will be a lot more. If you look at one of the variant covers for the final Dark Crisis issue, I believe, Dan Mora has created um, several variant covers where there's like two or three characters all on one cover. And it's, you know, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman. But then there's a secondary set that matches the first set, and it's characters that are related to those um to the main tier of the Justice League, right? And then that's where you get like Robin and Nightwing and um, Aqualad or the other Aquaman and Nubia, I think. So I think uh, those variant covers are kind of like spotlights of people who are going to get titles throughout 2023. I'm looking forward to it. I always like to jump in with a new initiative. Doesn't mean I actually read them, right? (laughs) Um, But I'll put them away in a different box, you know, start a whole new section. And um, f- for those that I collect anyway, I have to imagine, you know, if I if I finally jump into DC's uh, Ultra tier, uh, it'll be quite easy to not pick up these titles because I'll, you know, I can just read them a month later on the Ultra, on the DC Ultra side of the app. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this. All right, like always... Send me some feedback for anything you heard in that little bit of comic news or anything else in the digest. Peter at TheDailyRios.com Send me your voicemails. Go to the website TheDailyRios.com You can leave some comments there. Or follow me on Instagram, The Rios. Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, send me some book club recommendations. Send me some promos. And as always, this has been The Daily Rios, episode 589 for Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Happy birthday to me. Talk to you soon. Am I blue? Am I blue?
1: Ain't these tears in my eyes telling you? Am I blue?